Hi, I'm Cornell. I'm Glenroy. And I'm Kareem. And welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where... We're here with Bing Hill Strutt in Jamaican Queens, talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottoms up. Bottoms up. Okay, I, I was I was looking at the, the screen. Fish tea. Like, One, two, three. Bottoms up. Three seasons. Come on, girls. Get it together. Get it together. It's three like, seasons. It feels like a really long pause, though. By the way, I don't know if any of y'all remember this, but every time we do the introduction, I have this flashback to watching the KFC Chris show and every time I'm tempted to be like and welcome to the KFC Chris show where it's all about the fun um <laughs> but yeah that's like a deep that's a, deep a throwback tell me about it that was my first time meeting Jodie and Maxwell by the way and I was obsessed with her um but you know that was a that was a long while ago was in, in prep school okay come again Glenn Roy you did quiz in prep school I did. We did not make it past the first round, though. <laughs> oh, but that's fine. That's okay. I mean, we we still got to go and like, see the filming. Album, so it was cute. Hey, did you do it in high school? Oh, God, no. No. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I feel like quiz, the quiz team wasn't that big of a deal at our school. Did you ever consider that, Kareem? I don't... Do you remember that? Present. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like. Not really. Mm-mm. And I mean, you know what? I don't mean this to be shady, but to my knowledge, none of the... what we would call, like, top performers were involved. Although, I guess maybe there's different kinds of... But quiz isn't about... Some people who do well wouldn't necessarily do quiz. Quiz is a sport. And I don't... Because mm. having... I used to go to quiz practice. It's more about your ability to kind of remember the trivia questions and uh, preempt them and say them on time and maximize your time. So there's more. So it's not so much how much you can know or, or how bright you are, because there are a lot of people who do quiz but don't, don't necessarily do well. In my exams they generally do well enough, but they're not generally bright or highly intellectual. So I, I say it's an academic sport. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was not my vibe. I we were spending our time doing other things, which is quite fine with me. So anyway, how's your how's your weeks, or how was your week? Oh, Glenn, what happened? Oh no, no, I'm just oh. talking. <laughs> okay, so somebody is gonna say, "Oh God, this sounds serious." Something that. Uh, <laughs> this has been a very interesting week. I could say that much. Um, my nephew started homeschooling, and it is uh, it's a lot. To, it's a lot to adjust to. Like, I mean, I'm used to teaching online and taking classes online, but sitting beside a kindergartner who has to like pay attention for however I don't know long that they need to has been very interesting. And I've have so much more respect for teachers. Um, especially at that level, because his teacher also is a mom of a two-year-old and a kindergartner. And so she had to be making sure that they were doing what they need to do all while ensuring other kids were, while teaching other kids. So it was just, it was a lot to kind of witness and take in. Um, 
what else is happening? I'm grateful for alignment because a lot has been happening as it relates to like professional, um, professional opportunities. So I told you guys I was working with the Truth Racial Healing and Transformation Center. And I'm kind of today, right, right before this, we had a meeting about um, some upcoming webinar, some upcoming seminar that I'm supposed to facilitate. And then I have two other speaking opportunities. So one of them asked me to assemble a whole panel and I'm getting paid for all of these. So one of them asked me to assemble a whole panel about intersectionality and LGBTQ issues in the nonprofit sector, um, which is essentially my dissertation. And another one asked me to talk about um, social equity and social justice work from kind of like an intergenerational standpoint. I'm like, all right, come on. Yes. Give me all the coins. Give me all the opportunities. So, um, right. Yeah. Russia. Yeah. 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 That's how you secure the bag in the pandemic. Listen, (laughs) this this girl says she's here to secure the most obnoxious bag. And yeah, I'm I'm right there with her. So that has been my week. Um, I've got a regular week. Um, maybe take up my enough self and decide to um, assist with the debating at the faculty. So they were doing this debate for the orientation process. And there was a debate around, there was a recent case in Jamaica around the, the locks and a young girl being, not being allowed to go to school with her locks and that, um, I mean, in the end, the school said they would still allow her to go. But it was essentially a care of like, discrimination against certain styles and um, it wasn't the best judgment uh, um, and a lot of us felt like it was poorly decided. So anyways, there was a debate on, on it and I was helping um, the students. I was their coach, but I was actually the coach for the government team that I was essentially saying it's okay to say you can't wear locks and braids if you are in the police force. Um, that kind of hair discrimination is okay, which was an interesting exercise for me because it's easy for me to oppose it. It's not as easy for me to defend it. And that was a case for the students as well. Most of them disagreed with it. But the debate didn't ask me not to no lie. The students them tried them artists um, and they really present some strong um, arguments. It was a great opportunity for them as well. And outside of that, it was a regular cool weekend where they look work, you try and get things done. Um, we are, we, are for, we are praying for sustenance and funding over at the flags. You know, we always need them somebody. So, yeah, we are working on some of that. So, so keep us in your prayers. Pray to the gay gods and such. <laughs> Give us increase. Yeah, you. Uh, then something that we are praying for. Collect some. Oh, gosh, you know what? You know, I'm about to church up in Canada and, and, and U.S. can go. Can collect some Afrid for it. Not so bad. We can probably do something like that. But yeah, I'm about to church him, but I feel like I'm offering from Jay Flag right now. I'm about to church him, not so good. No, but I am affiliated with a few. <laughs> oh gosh, no, I'm going to Zoom, Zoom present to Uno. I'm going to do some money. I have something. Yeah, what's that, girl? Right. <laughs> oh gosh, Cornel, how was your week? It's good. Uh, Good, I think. Yeah. So first week of classes, uh, online teaching is quite the experience and adjustment. I made the decision to provide recordings for one of my courses in the name of accessibility, um, partially in terms of like students with particular kinds of learning disabilities, but also recognizing that some students uh, might have other commitments that in terms of like work and caregiving and labor and all of that stuff, but also realistically some students might be in different, different time zones. But my concern right now is I feel deeply 
self-conscious about my voice. And so it's weird and uncomfortable offering that up for students when I don't know what they're going to be. Why do like, they not like that? I have a question. Yes. The people that can't listen to podcast. Can't listen to what? Yes. If they can listen to a podcast, I guess so. No, what I'm saying is, aren't they already able to access a podcast? Not that they're doing it, I'm just thinking that. Um, I mean, if, if they know about the podcast, sure. Would I that. podcast? Would I Google it and find the podcast? <laughs> I mean, it's just really interesting to me that uh, this is in, in, like, you know, yeah, have a look nice, I'm going to say creamy, but we don't know how that will come off. They have a nice, soothe voice, and <laughs> um, that's still a, it's still a thing for you to do. But that's interesting. But yeah, yeah, I record podcasts, and I don't know if they're not vulnerable with you. I mean, part of it's the voice thing, but it's also, there's a vulnerability in terms of the course content and what you're seeing, and... There's a whole, I don't know, I don't know. It's a weird thing, but a decision, the, the decision was already made. So I don't know what can you do. But otherwise, it's been good. It's already feeling like fall, so that is very interesting. Um, I find so okay. This is like a really random side note, but I have HD TV on preview right now, <laughs> and I can't stop thinking about real estate. <laughs> And so I keep thinking about, I don't know. I mean, it's also thinking about real estate, but thinking about, like, will I ever be able to afford a house? So that's a whole other situation. I mean, I don't know if all the us, all the space I got used up. If we not have backyard, that is a plan for breed. It's it's on the table? Question mark. I don't know. You know what's funny though? Um, mine's also has experience with construction, so that will come in handy. Um, but in any case, we can move quickly along onto today's topic. Well, I know, wait, before, speaking of breed, speaking of breed, did you guys see that video? I don't know how fake it is or how real it is. Of the, the, huh? The metal transit. Right, right. No! No, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Furthermore, I would, with all due respect, I wouldn't want my picky band under the circumstances there. Apparently, a gay couple was able to do like the first successful um, what uterus transplant and give birth. Oh, wow. through, yeah, so they the the they were able to insert, I guess, the anal the the uterus inside him and okay, have donated eggs. Right and so. I know. No. Okay, we're good. I'm, we are good. I can't. I want my penis completed. You're lucky me send it to everybody and tell them to look out for the um, godmother request for next year. <laughs> oh, yeah, but it's also, can you imagine my friend I'm inside with a lemonade while I passed through today and knock out the mouth of the mouth? Can you imagine? <laughs> but anyway. Well, I mean, there was a version of that when I moved in, so. <laughs> in any case. But anyway, we. <laughs> um, so, do you want to make the honors of. Allow me some time. Sure, I'm not Allow me, please. No, no, situation. Anyways, all right, you know, we're proud to present to you a very special guest on the Fishy Podcast. You know, he's been one of our favorite 
of all our episodes and throughout our seasons, always giving us constructive feedback, you know. Um, a really dear friend of mine, and I call him, well, no, let just think of a title for call him. I think he's best introduced as the godfather of the gays. <laughs> um, he's given a lot to the movement locally, but also even beyond the movement, he's just given a lot to Jamaica in his work, his commentary in the greener. Oh, I know the channel, right? Not a greener. Yes, yes, China, right? Not a greener. More than 10 years, I think. That's so much. That's so much. I don't believe that. Because remember, it's 2020. You're not right from 2010. Apparently, I don't believe that. Anyway, I like to have right this for 10 years. Um, but yes, um, I, we introduced you on the Fish Tea podcast, the great and inspiring and devious Javier Nelson. Welcome to the Fish Tea. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ooh. Hi, thanks for having me. I finally reached from the fish tea, but coerced, not voluntarily. That was going to be my first question. I was, oh my God. My first question was going to be, Javian, was this a choice? <laughs> it was not a choice. I was not asked what time I'm available or anything. I just hear something just after make myself available. So, let me get like a box up and beat up from somebody because they didn't already. This is the only <laughs> It's only the child who in there. He has to come on the podcast. He don't have no choice. <laughs> so, um, okay. I for one day, you're one of the people in the house of Yemo, right? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. Oh but he's always looking out for my kids too. You know, I'm helpful when I'm ready. You know, he's a nice little man. But no, no, anybody. Right, this is so like a it's like a baby man, a baby father relationship. I mean, me and nothing about you know, I'm a baby father already. Don't know, my baby father already. All right. On the record, just in case somebody are listening, we need nothing, right? Because I'm not wanting black progress in our life. Because we're starting to get America. Would I want me and in my black my progress. There we go. I'm ever so often listen to me. Jim and I made down there. We never did that. However, if you want him, I want to put it at here. We'll talk about cost and price after. Oh agree. Yeah, you anyways, friend, you know, we're here to talk about all the work you've done. For the movement, your contributions, you know, your vision for Jamaica. I know Cornel had a lot of questions, and since you know some of the answers are already, I'm going to sit in the background for this one and, and jump in as necessary. All right, over to you, girls. I'm on my feet and keep it. Like, <laughs> that was a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess so to start, if you could kind of give us a bit of a trajectory in terms of how you got into the kind of advocacy work um, that you've been doing for the past, it's about a decade, I think. Um, yeah, about a decade or so. Uh, what drew you to this line of work? And if you are able, I think it would be helpful for me anyway to get a sense of what the conversation around queerness, uh, gas, um, Batman behavior uh, was like when you were uh, what preteen adolescent years coming into yourself. Like, what was the kind of context 
there? Well, I mean, that's assuming that I'm, I've come into myself. Um, but um, as you know, kind of also in my days when I was younger, um, in my teens, that was not a conversation that people had really. You might hear, you know, people talk one and two things that maybe ex and ex have AIDS or whatever, or no one and two song. Um, I was born in 1986, so very, very old. So that kind of vocabulary and conversation was not something that people had. Um, there were one and two times that things came up at, at like school. Um, or you hear whispers about people or what people might think of you. Um, you know, like that one time when we did kind of bully one guy. Um, but overall, I've been an advocate for quite some time. Um, so before I came to, I went to JFLAG, I was always an advocate. I mean, even at church, there's a famous story of how I was put to the back bench and given suspension for six months at church or at three months. One of them, between three and six months. Um, for, sorry? I put it out there, them read the child out at church. I hear it famously from somebody who didn't know him back then. Church. First of all, you know, so I was given a three or six month suspension. Um, forgot about bench candidate not become a give the pass on ultimatum. So I think I've always been an advocate. I started out like in 2002 doing community development work and advocating for better resources and stuff like that. Um, continued and got involved in all sorts of different things that you um, work at the national level. So my focus was always on like youth participation and governance and national development. And so um, I remember my friend going to a conference and coming back and talk to us about SR, sex and reproductive health and stuff. And I said, oh, but this sounds interesting. And it sounds very, very challenging. I think that was like about 2006, 2007, when I was almost through with um, UAE. And I said, oh, well, I think this is something that I could get involved in because I think it would challenge me and help me to learn about myself. Um, and so I started paying attention more to sex and reproductive health and rights. And over time, I, you know, I sort of realized that LGBT issues is also something that's very, very important. And I remember um, my friend and colleague at the time, um, Mimi Mellis, who was based in D.C., um, saying there was an opportunity and they wanted someone to um, speak on LGBT issues um, from a sort of personal perspective and you know she used to challenge me and force me to do things kind of like Glenn Ryan so took the opportunity gave a little speech on Capitol Hill about my personal experiences and the challenges that people face in, in Jamaica and then before that somebody also bad me for kind of ghostwrite one letter under the famous Corbin Gordon um, and so I wrote a letter about <laughs> challenging and a couple of years back <laughs> The child sent me an old letter from the same cabin, and I read the letter and get so excited. So, oh, cabin, I'm so nice. You're too money, money. That's the problem. Child, I the old it was bigger, JV, and it's so embarrassed. Yeah, so that's kind of how I got involved. And then when I started thinking about, you know, going to study, um, I thought, you know, I should just do something about LGBT rights because one, I wanted to challenge myself and to learn more about the community that I'm, a, I'm a supposedly a part of. Um, but importantly, to use whatever kind of um, opportunities I have to better the community and so that those people I know um, who are facing difficulties could have somebody who could stand up for them and that kind of thing. And yeah, you know, that's how I ended up at JFLAG. So I kind of did volunteer two weeks before I went to study. 
Okay, so you've done quite a bit, and I can see how um, getting into um, advocacy work on behalf of the LGBTQ plus community was kind of a perhaps natural trajectory. One of the other things I was really interested in about that I was mentioning to um, the guys before the we, I mean, a couple of days ago before we were recording was when I first heard about J-Flag, um, there was a particular kind of image or uh, reputation at the time. And I feel like that has shifted quite dramatically. And so there's a different kind of um, presence in the Jamaican and Caribbean landscape. Um, and so I'm, I guess I'd be interested in hearing a bit about what was it that like led to that that shift was it like a changing culture was it a changing what was it a change in the the leadership uh change in mandate like like what kind of allowed for um the organization to be where it is now because it feels i mean even from the distance that i'm at it feels quite different yeah i think i mean even for me you know when i started the organization basically had barely had any kind of um, strategic program or focus. A lot of the work was around responding to people who um, face difficulties and particular difficulties. You know, somebody maybe kicked out of their home or there was an incident of violence. And so JFLAG was kind of known for, you know, sending out press release instantly and um, seeing how best they could assist community members despite the lack of resources. Um, and so I think it's a whole bugger different something that kind of did happen. Um, one, I think when I joined, I remember part of the reason why, um, you know, in the recruitment and why I think I, I got the position was to also help the organization kind of expand its work beyond just being reactive and responding to issues of violence. Um, but I think overall, I think the organization recognized that it was growing. Um, that was about, what, 10 years old or something the organization was. Um, it was shortly after Dane had sort of started using his name as the head of JFLAG as well, because before he was Jason McFarlane, um, and so nobody knew him. So I think, as with anything, you know, you kind of have processes and you go through different phases of life and I think that was what was happening and um, I went in at a time when that was particularly important so I think for the changes in the organization it was one a kind of broadened focus and my kind of research was about how we look at human rights and in particular LGBT issues and how that fit within the national development thrust um, but importantly how we could begin to align more with people um, and begin to exploit as many opportunities as possible. So, you know, like somebody like me was heavily involved in like HIV, AIDS and SRH and youth spaces. And I worked in violence prevention before. So when I went there, I had to be using all of those connections and stuff um, to sort of see how we can bring people on board. It was very, very difficult. I mean, at that time, JFJ was a little hesitant to even um, speak out publicly about stuff for um, JFLAG. But I think over time, as we began to speaking a more wholesome way about the community and not just seen as a sort of a tap dog by our colleagues in civil society. I think people started to soften up and see that there's so much more that we kind of have to do for LGBT people and recognize that LGBT rights is not different from human rights and that we can begin to uh, make use of the opportunities that are available to really advocate for the community. And I think there was one really key moment for the organization 
in the way it used to do advocacy. And I think it was either 2011 or 2012, um, August, there was a murder. Two guys were murdered um, and they were left in an empty lot right by um, Trafalgar Road. I think the corner of Trafalgar and the intersection right there between Lady Musgrave and I remember Dane had put out a press release and um, I was at a conference and both of us sat online and we wrote the press release and people reviewed it. And I think it was on RJR, maybe with Dion actually. Dane was giving an interview and in the midst of the interview, news came from the police that it was actually not a homophobic violence apparently, but seemingly something else. Um, though the individuals were gay. And so Dane kind of was caught flat-footed and mafia apologized fan radio and that kind of thing. And I think at that point, we said, well, we have to begin to speak a little bit differently. We have to be more thorough in terms of how we speak out about violence, get some information. I remember even like on Facebook, the time the Facebook did hot, hot. There was a group that we were involved in and people were saying, Jay Flag, if you begin to understand some of the issues that's going on and not just speak out and, and that kind of thing. And I think that really helped. Um, and then personally, I remember somebody who I respected a lot who was involved in media tweeting one day and saying, well, look at these two people, at um, gay people at, at, at Devon House, hugging up and carrying on, and then said that the country homophobic. And I realized that a lot of the pushback that we were getting from people who we needed to support us was also because they think that the narrative that we were pushing did not necessarily align with what they were seeing even though the issues were still very real and very pervasive right across the country. And I think we started to, you know, and as we got more stuff, things change and we could have to look a bit more or get more money and then kind of something there. And yeah, kind of roundabout way if we say all that happened. So I want to, because I feel like your story and your journey of kind of taking JFLG from uh, caricature of LGBT advocacy into a, an actually a machinery that seeks to widely talk about the issues that affect the community. Is that there's that there was there's that struggle that 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 existed there, and that's, and and I remember one of one of my first letters to the editor was me kind of resp- kind of responding to something that you had said without kind of recognizing where you were coming from when you were. So it was that. Remember the infamous article you did about. I don't remember what you were saying was that Jamaica is not that homophobic. Remember that one that you had done? upset. <laughs> and then I remember, I remember once I went to a meeting and Yalna was, Yalna and Angelina was like, oh, Javian set us back or so, um, something like that. But um, let, I want to kind of talk about that, that how you were able to navigate the pushback that you got from that in, in your attempts to kind of complicate the narrative of Jamaica. Um, which now we understand as um, a kind of neocolonial fixation of presenting black commu- black countries as savage, but back then we never did think about it that way. They given our closeness to the reality, and some people still think about it this way because of their closeness to the trauma that exists. So, how did you manage that? Before, um, what? before yes. we did, sorry, before you um, talk about managing that pushback, if you could just say a bit more, and I. I guess you probably will go into it. Just kind of say a bit more between um, about that distinction between what people see, right, and versus what really is or what people's experiences are. Because I can admit that I definitely might still be a part of the camp that says that Jamaica is still somewhat homophobic. Um, And I think that's only because of my own badger. That's my lived experience. I'm the one that people stare at when they see me um, walking down the street or 
you know, like I'm still the one that people are just whisper about and say, watch about him or whatever the case may be. So can you say more about that distinction and then perhaps talk about your article and how you managed to push back? Um, boy, I not even know. I mean, I think it was very difficult for me, um, actually. And I think, you know, there were, there were like different spaces in which I was located that I kind of had to navigate and help people see things from a different perspective. Um, so even internally, I think there's a bit of a struggle and, you know, bless Dane. I think Dane was really good in sort of being very, very supportive and trying new things and providing that space for new ideas to flourish and new narratives. Um, But for me, I thought that the narrative was a little bit limiting because even from just looking at my own research and thinking about my own personal experiences, I mean, I left Jamaica feeling one particular way, though I was not necessarily, I think, very immersed in a particular culture. And, you know, while I also recognizing that I was in particular spaces, whenever I experienced certain issues, um, but I remember reading the Hated to Death report and I felt so afraid and I didn't know this country that I was um, reading about. And um, then I came back to Jamaica in 2010 and I made it very, very afraid. And I also, rec- I also adapted that narrative and I was like, yeah, very homophobic. You can't live here, so, you know. And I remember coming back and I always had my passport in my bag and I never really get much fear. I mean, I said, boy, I'm going to make sure some hours have a twenty, thirty thousand dollar fee. Um, if anything happens, we can call like a five hundred dollar taxi and run one at the airport and find out we can reach America because anything can pop up because this place is just so fucking dangerous. Um, but over time, as I sort of had conversations with people within the community and outside of the community, I recognized that a lot of people also could not necessarily identify with what we were saying. So while the violence existed and was a huge part of what we face as a community and as a country, it was almost as if this was foreign to some people because there was just so much more about people's daily reality and their lived experiences. And I think the defining moment was when um, Javed came, I think, what, 2014, maybe they're about, or 2012. One of them time there. Um, and helped to complicate the um, narrative and help me understand some of the things that I was trying to question and trying to understand. Um, and there was a point in which, you know, looking back at like when Marcia Forbes had made that tweet about how we said Jamaica is homophobic and look at people them sit on about not trouble them and recognizing that there are some spaces that people exist and that the experiences that we have as a community, as a country, is not just the violence. The violence is one manifestation and perhaps the worst part of it, but we also have to look at all, all of them other something where people are experienced um, and try and deal with them because you're going to alienate some people in the community and you're also going to alienate the people who you need to um, talk to. And an important thing for me was if you really want to change, you can't always scream, scream at people. And if the label is what um, bothers so many people, then perhaps somebody from inside Africa start challenge that narrative and say, why it bad, but let us look at the other opportunities that have been created and see how we can begin to fix it. Um, because if it is that you scream at the people and you don't get at the table to get to fix things, then it kind of just a shout at yourself and a shout at each other. Um, and nobody's necessarily listening to you. Um, and I think one defining moment again 
was one of those same articles. Come to me, the kind of like a series of them where almost like a rebellion um, talking about we need to rethink and that there's no metric in how we measure the most homophobic place on earth. And if you look at a country like Uganda and Jamaica, what are the differences and stuff? And looking at someone like Frank Mugusha in Uganda where they were carrying out all sorts of things and that we exist in Jamaica and as advocates, we weren't necessarily experiencing that at that time. But there was one senator um, who had written to me, um, who I knew, who written, wrote to me one day when I wrote one of those articles and said, thank you because what you guys do not understand is that there are possibilities and that we have to begin to talk about some of the things that can actually bring people together so that we can get further ahead. I don't know if that answered the question. But. No, for sure. It definitely does. Because um, even to this day, I still kind of struggle with articulating Jamaica. And I mean, I, I can't really say much because I've been away for a while, but um, like the moment I let people know, oh, I'm from Jamaica and I grew up there and yeah, yeah, yeah. The first thing was, oh my God, how did you, how did yeah. you survive that? Like, how did you handle that? And are they still like that? And sometimes I'm just like, well, I, I don't know. Like it's, I haven't been there in so long, so I can't necessarily say like, this is what is happening. But like, I'll, I'll reference the work that Glenroy does and I'll say, well, you know, my podcast co-host, mm-hmm. um, he's there and he lets me know that this is happening in the area. So I, I, like I'll say that progress is being made, but articulating exactly what that progress is, I just kind of step back and allow them to go do the research. Yeah. Kind of, I think the progress is difficult to see and it's not on a wide scale. You know, it's almost like the violence Jamaica violent, but we have pockets are, are, are right. a peaceful community. I think it's the same thing for the tolerance, for the, for the progress. And I think I remember writing one time for the pride, um, well, pride article, you know, that the progress will not look like it, it is in North America. We're not going to sell it to rainbow flags and stuff like that. And the interesting thing is that a big part of me recognizing the progress was actual people in the community and not no uptown people, right? Just regular community people who are say, you know, we got dance, yes, so, and the DJ them start, stop say, butch and burn out the bush them and them kind of something there. And sort of said, you guys need to begin to look beyond um, what you, you keep looking at. And I think that's important because it's different. Jamaica's still very, very homophobic. People still uh, get beaten, kick out of them house and all sorts of things. And, you know, the homophobia still like the music. They're all over, you know, the school. But at the same time, I think we live as a very complicated reality in the country and it's not the same experience for everybody. Right. Yeah. Well, if I could just... Oh, go ahead, Karen. Now, I was going to say, before we talk, I was very interested to kind of hear about this kind of... and I'm taking you back a little bit, like when you started really engaging with the organization and decided, okay, this is where I'm going to, for the next foreseeable amount of years, I'm going to be. I'm curious to hear, like, what were some of those conversations like with yourself? Um, and forgive me if I'm projecting, because I'm just thinking like, if I was supposed to be working with J-Flag, I mean, the J-Flag that Cornell kind of talked about, right? The reputation that it had and, you know, having to use... Um, Everybody right? Right. Like, what were those conversations like with you and your family? for a year, <laughs> right? Um, but a big part of the conversation was really just about how do we understand and what more can we do and how do we learn about the history of the community and the history of the organization and how do we um, use that to um, inform the way forward and how do we learn about everything that the government are do and other people are do and recognize every little, little, little something. 
Um, so there were all sorts of conversations. It was like a difficult sometime. And people I said, why are you this? I mean, nobody in my family even know where I work, right? Back in that time, we used to say we work at Jamaica Aid Support for Life. And we're all at the same location. Um, and the taxi man, when they drop you off, so when my friend couldn't carry me, um, he used to say, I want to go on over here, so in boss, I want to go on over here. So I say, No, we just took human rights and HIV work and something, I make sure people get treatment and all them kind of something. Meanwhile, I have some real child at the yard, I walk up and down, I have child, make them turn them head and I look on them. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I use this suit, I continue to use um, Corbin. Gordon, when I did anything public, so I would write one and two articles. And if it wasn't their name, I would use my Corbin Gordon. Um, my mother, I was at say, where work? And I say, Jamaica Aid Support for Life. And then one time, it transformed to the Caribbean Vulnerable Communities Coalition. Um, but, you know, it was very difficult for me because I was navigating, trying to learn about myself and all your faith, working at a space. I remember somebody also come back and things say, any moment, no, I'm just get lit down and dead because somebody also have no friend at England would say, don't go back to Jamaica. And enough people at Jamaica and the community are saying, why do you want to come back to Jamaica and worse to come from work with J-Flag? Yeah, I eat that. But here I am, 10 years later, safe and sound, praise the Lord. Uh, that was great. I actually, well, that's actually a nice segue into the question I was going to ask. Well, hopefully it's a question. Maybe not. We'll see. But um, where did my notes go? Okay, so... To take us back ever so briefly, the point that uh, you and Kareem were talking about earlier around, you know, the extent to which Jamaica is a homophobic place, I think it doesn't have to be either or, it can be both and, right? So it can be the case that, yes, homophobic violence happens, people are getting beat, people are getting kicked out of their home, but at the same time, people are still going out and having sex and going to parties, and it's like, cool, I think we can hold those in the same space at the same time. It's interesting that you mentioned you know, that you used Uganda as an example because I attended a, a panel thing a couple of years ago here in Toronto and it was, oh my God, I wish I remember the name of it, but basically they were holding up, it was like one lot something and they were talking about Jamaica and Uganda, but it was mm-hmm. interesting because they seemed to be flattening in a way the experiences of uh, gay people in both countries and it was done in this really what I thought to be a very like strange sensational um but also a kind of like shameless appeal at like asking for funding from my people um mm-hmm. so I mean I think the, the point about nuance is also important but to loop in the point about what you were saying in terms of using pseudonyms I also wanted to you to speak more directly about you know, negotiating visibility and fear and, like, the moment at which... So you were talking about that, you know, Dane, Dane started using his name, you know, at a particular point in time. You stopped using pseudonyms at a particular point in time. And I, in my mind, anyway, I don't know, but I would imagine that this is also a point where the organization itself also became more... Um, I don't know what else to say besides present really but people but but i think there's a certain kinds of uh stakes um there because either you risk alienating yourself from people but it's also an invitation to be like hey um lgbt people are also people that are in your lives and that you love and that you have relationships with i'm also thinking you know alongside this in terms of the we are jamaicans campaign how that was also a moment of being like hey we're here we're a part of your community um, we live, you know, relatively the same lives 
that you do. Can you maybe say a little bit more about like what that meant in terms of, yeah, visibility and what people perhaps had to uh, wrestle with? Well, also as an aside, I don't know if this was in my mind. I feel like this was a thing that happened on Twitter, maybe. I think, I, did you recently put up a thing where you were talking about, you know, because you just brought up, you know, your, your family members not knowing where you worked. Was there, was there like a thread or something recently where you were talking about yeah. having that conversation? So I don't know if you, if you, if you feel comfortable talking about that too, but I also think that, you know, represents a certain kind of moment too. Oh. Sorry, that was oh. a lot. Yeah. Well, first of all, the student in never last too, too, too long. I mean, I think it could be under a year, if a year and a half at most, because it kind of confused me um, and stuff. And then, you know, I would sort of write to people and then who I know under the guise of Corbin Gordon. And then when we need to meet them and something, a problem. Somebody just say, no, fuck this shit. Use my name. These people know me. They're not going to do anything anyway. Uh, whatever, and I can stand up to them. The only thing we couldn't take are certain kind of things. Um, so I just stopped using it. And I think it was sort of the same kind of thing with him because, you know, at the time, I think he was writing to Bruce Golden, and I think he said at one point, he was like, well, what the hell if Bruce invited me to OPM? What am I going to turn up as? I can't turn up as Jason McFarlane. I'm not going to prove as Jason McFarlane. And so I think eventually he had a conversation with his mother and, and stuff. Um, for me, um, yeah, I agree. I think it doesn't have to be an either-or sort of conversation. Um, and I think that was what I was trying to because sometimes I kind of fail because, yeah, I try to test out a little thing. Um, but I think eventually people started to understand it, brought people together and brought people in the room. Um, for me, in ter- I feel like, let me forget one of you something about in terms of the thread, um, the big thing for me was sort of helping people see that realities exist because, you know, I'm really kind of thinking about my own life experiences and how I sort of divorced myself from family because of work and stuff and that the possibility just doesn't exist to be in those spaces. Um, and I was sort of, what do you call that? A fraud because my life would tell people to do certain things, but they're the complete opposite. Um, then I know that quite well. Um, but as I always say to people, do as I say and not as I do. Um, but then, you know, there are things in life that just kind of force you to be back in certain spaces and you just have no choice. And I think one of that point was when my, my aunt moved back to Jamaica from New York. And I'm my favorite auntie, I couldn't tell her, I said, I'm come out of I'm also I'm in something, right? I just have to just must up the courage and I bring to my Batman friend, them, I will go down there. Um, and I said, well, if anything... Then we'll protect me and empty and, and so. Um, if I dirt, I dirt, girl. So, but it was very interesting for me. You know, people came up and they were like, you remember me? And everybody know my memory kind of bad. And, you know, you know, so I grew up big and when me I do and stuff like that, I was like, oh, wow, you know. And then I started to challenge my own um, biases about the people who I was supposed to be around and the people who loved me and recognizing that they too have to go on journeys and all sort of something and, you know, I've had to go back different times, including going to my primary school um, last year and doing a kind of like award ceremony, um, awards thingy, and just how people receive me. Um, and for me, that was very, very touching and um, kind of something there. But let me forget the other question I did ask, which I think was the most important part. Let me remember. Let me remember. The question was, yes. oh, you did navigate, the, I guess, the transition into visibility with, I guess, your family. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. But, so but, that but, was like a big... Co- but yeah. not just family. I think just like 
publicly in terms of, you know, even partnerships with other organizations? Right. Um, so for the organization, um, I remember being in York for a couple of months and meeting Kian, Dr. Kian West, who um, is from Jamaica and he's a social psychologist. And he was telling me about his research. Well, I met his wife first, um, who had done work in Rwanda. And then I met him and he talked about his work about contact and stuff. I was like, hmm, this makes sense because I was always interested in dialogue and how we communicate. Um, and we came back to Jamaica and a couple, two guys from Harvard messaged us saying they wanted to do some research as part of their master's thesis. And they did this thing. And one of the ideas that they came up with was a We Are Jamaicans campaign. I was like, well, this is perfect. And when Javed come and Javed said, well, let us do it now. Very, very important. And we're going to use it as an organization's big coming up. Because at the time, people still didn't know who Dane was. You know his name. And I think there was one or two cartoons in either Observe or Dean, where they kind of dry him, um, including the one on the Charter of Rights, so him under the umbrella and the Rangers are waiting up because they never put Batman in the, camps, in, the, in the charter. And it was Dane's big coming out. He headlined the campaign, had a conversation with his mother, headlined the campaign. Um, and then there was Susan Goff and Alexis Goff and um, a couple other people. And it excited people so much. And finally, people were seeing the people who were involved in JFLAG. Um, we started with five videos and people really, really liked it just sharing different stories, stories of hope and something. Because there's something really um, difficult about one kind of narrative, and I don't think it really helps younger people especially. Um, but then even for me, um, I don't really like the public, something too tough, generally as much as me chat so much, I kind of like behind the scenes generally. I'm a shy, I'm an introvert, um, and I'm the kind of person who's going to stay in the corner on my phone and pretend like I'm not really here, yeah, so come and really want to talk. Um, but over time, I recognized that I have a voice and I have access to spaces and I was sort of limiting myself because music taught me and whatever. And so I started speaking up more. I started writing more. I started um, taking opportunities to talk and not always sending Dane. And, you know, people are saying you need to speak. And I recognize that there are some people who I could speak to. There are some people who Dane could speak to and some people who other people could speak. And so I kind of use that in an, when we do the first one, you know, really say from J flag. Um, but the interesting thing was that I was not the first person to, I, I was not the person who said, all right, I can't put me as J flag. It was like, People in the media who I knew who were saying it, you know, like the other day, maybe here is somebody messaging me, I say, here Cliff Panarini, I say, yeah, Batman, I know, yeah, the things, and blah, 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 and I say, Lord, Jesus, no, sit there. Um, because I still don't necessarily like to talk about myself and so forth, you know? It just happened, and, you know, the reception from people when I saw people in different spaces and stuff, including people who are really in the Batman, something, and then said, well, I'm a real agree they are saying a but. Um, and I always use those bots as an opportunity to begin to understand. And, you know, the more you kind of engage people, you realize that there's opportunity for conversation and kind of meet people at different levels and not just always um, talk in a particular way. Um, yeah, I think you can start this up. But, you know, well, while I think about that, right, I think also one big part of the organization's, um, what do you call it, big opportunity was when we started to embrace Jamaican culture a little bit more. And like when we did step out and say, Boy, we understand that the homophobic music bad, but we're not a part of the Stop Murder Music campaign. And I think that really 
she made a difference for a lot of Jamaicans because, you know, enough people still bit about it, even to this very, very day, um, because of how they felt that we sort of brandished the Jamaican music and culture. Um, and we started to speak patois in different spaces and use some of the language that people use in a different space and the workshop them and stuff. And the more we recognize that, well, this kind of create the opportunities and people are understanding and listening and more relatable. Because human rights language kind of difficult and nobody really talks so. I just we want to talk so and it really makes sense here talk about UN something and you can't be verbose. Um, um, very eloquent in the UN speak and then you can't speak to your own people because then it really makes no sense. And I think that has also helped organization um a whole lot absolutely so i guess i have wait was someone gonna go oh so i guess i um so it seems like there's also been a shift from using primarily jflag to equality jae and i'd be curious to hear about like what um how that shift or change came about but also i i'm very interested in hearing about like how Jamaica Pride was conceived, like why, why that particular moment, why that time, why that year? Um, yeah, why, how, where? Oh, well, for Twitter, for, 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 for um, I think only on Twitter we had used Equality JA. Um, in 2011, we were starting a new project to train healthcare workers. And as part of the project, I had written um, a communications officer into it because I thought we needed to do more um, publicly in that regard. And um, we, we, we deliberated on different names. So let's just say Equality JA. Um, it wasn't any kind of big thing. We just thought it would be easier for people, including those in the community, to interact with a page that didn't necessarily say JFLAG um, and stuff, even though it was clearly about LGBT issues. And I think that is also sort of what led to us just ending up having equality for all as sort of the business name of the organization. Um, Pride, boy, I don't even know how we each reached at 2015, we need to know. But I think in, was it 2011 or so? Um, there was a Pride event at Constant Spring that was done by Stacey and Jared. Um, huge mm. movement shake in the community. Yeah. Um, and before that, she always had, um, what is something named Oasis? Oasis. Had lovely yeah. conversations. Conversation. Yeah, girl. Lovely conversations. And she oh, did this big one day Pride something. Me never go because I'm still very afraid because I hated to the report in my mind. Same way, mm-hmm. I mean, I said, boy, I can't send Spring Gold Club just to write this. Everybody can't see everything. But it was a beautiful event. And I remember if a couple years, about three years ago, I look back at some emails. I think we wanted to recreate it again, either in 2012 or 2013. It never really happened. Um, and we expanded our staff and we started to be more public and stuff. And somehow 2015, we just said, we're going to do it. I would have Latoya, um, Nugent, and staff. And, you know, not Latoya very bold and something, and she's courageous. And we just figured that it can happen. And we did it. It was very low-key. Uh, we started at Emancipation Park with one little um, something that was supposed to be 10 little LGBT people running around, um, which turned out to be about 30, 40 people. And Ellen, uh, whatever she did name, was there. And it kind of just blew up. And that was, for me, the best pride ever, though, because it was just small, very intimate, beautiful. Um, but it was really just about the organization being bold and recognizing that there are some people in the community who wanted an opportunity to just be out there, and you just have to make use of that. It's so funny. I mean, no one of your first pride will be the best pride, because 2016 was the best for me. 
because I feel like it was the first Pride of it. Not only was it the first Pride that I went to, it was the first Pride of it still. Because 2016 was when you were doing the big events, the sports day, the beach event. Um, 2016, we did the, um, the black tie. And it felt like, wow, you know, we're doing these kind of events here. So even like we'll walk around the, 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 um, the youth um, bowl as right. was something and I think 2017 runs closer second behind it because it took a step up um, in different um, and then of course the breakfast party at 2017 is, will always be that breakfast party because it mm. but yeah so and, and it's so funny that you said 2015 was low key um, because it never felt low key how, in how it was talked about in the media, it definitely was that moment where we said, Lord Jesus, this is actually happening here. So even if I did just, even if the events never massive, it's it still, I guess, symbolically and ideologically massive for a lot of us to consume the possibilities. And I think that's why it, it has ended up becoming what it has become. And of course, Pride of Bolivar highlights from yeah, you. Yeah, Papa Drugs in 2019, to the end of 2018. I it. My question is, um, before we get in a welcome last segment, come here watch the time sheet, um, is what has been the kind of biggest challenge that you've had to overcome in, 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 um, in working with the organization in the different capacities you've had from um, programs and advocacy manager to, the, to your, becoming the director of programs to when you, you, know, you became executive director? I feel like you set me up, Glenn I was saying even before that. that question. A second exit interview. Damn. Okay. Well, that is what a challenge tell me, which is really wicked. But you know, I think for even though 2015 was very small in terms of numbers, although the number is bigger than what it expect um, from the very get go. But we were very deliberate about how do we push this into the media and how do we exploit it as best as possible. Um, remember some used to work at Glean Answer, so we kind of like the media something there, man. That's how you also understand and they come from media background. So we just push it as big as possible. And never and it that LMP did it, I would just met the most of it. Um, for me, I think the biggest problem for me was that I always sort of felt like an outsider within um, because I never really I never really um, seemed to fit um, squarely into what people expect of an advocate or somebody who is LGBTQ. Um, you know, I, ne- I didn't necessarily have any um, defining moment in my life about my identity. Um, nobody necessarily knew me before I got to the organization, per se. I mean, even though I got enough about the party. Um, but people didn't know about me, and it doesn't help that I'm not one to necessarily talk about myself too much. Um, and my personal experiences, and I remember, you know, when me and my father did kind of kick off, me did start to put it out there, which was so uncharacteristic because me, I feel like, so well, maybe I should try and let people recognize that, well, I'm a part of this community and I have some challenges too. Um, but that was the biggest thing for me. Like, how do I help people to see who I am and what I'm about? And, you know, I remember one time, also 2012, we go home and we cuss somebody with my ball and... Yeah, it was really low for me because I remember people saying all sorts of stuff about one of them same article about homophobia and how many experience of homophobia and something I don't want people to let me down. And then there was apparently some people saying, oh, the PNP people, they betrayed me to God, JFL, go mash up the organization and 
all such a song. And it was really, really rough for me. Um, but notwithstanding, I think those things also helped me to become stronger and recognize that I have to also pay attention more to the community and how I work with the community and engage the community. Um, but yeah, it just, and to this very day, I still feel like I'm an outsider within the community um, because I just don't feel like um, people think I truly belong for all sorts of different reasons. Um, I have to follow up here, so. Oh, Jesus. But um, I feel like with all of that said, you've been able to, while being in the organization, make some really great friends um, with a lot of people that have worked there and have been like uh, a big brother to a lot of us. Um, and, I, and I'm just wondering if you could just briefly just talk about some of the, the relationships that you've been able to create internally and how, and, and how those have also impacted you before we go to the last question. Uh, you're not a top and, and I tack on to that too. Like if you, in, I guess, um, talking about all of that, just probably your biggest professional achievement that you think so oh, far to this day. Like a- um... I mean, yeah, I think, I think it helps that I'm naturally shy. I'm a very introverted. I mean, I really meet and talk to people easy. Um, so I sort of just end up have to rely on the people who I work with to sort of engage in a particular way. Um, and it helps that we kind of get nice people who work at the organization. And so you kind of build relationships with people and recognize that people have passions and, um, you know, they can be nurtured and that all of we are learning and growing and try to understand and try to do a little good um, to chip away um, the homophobia and transphobia and queerphobia and everything bit by bit by bit. Um, yeah, and I think just because of how I grew up, I mean, as a little boy, my granny used to send me up the road up on the train line to go one man food every evening. Um, or every at least three times a week sometimes. Um, evening at the rain when up the flood out, I have to put on the big level water boot where can't fit me and walk through the water and carry the food go get the atsu go get the man because this man from nowhere should know by himself in our house and sick. So I kind of have that background where I always have to recognize say I'm around people, I have to support people, I have to nurture people and learn from people and all such as something. Um, biggest professional um, achievement I mean, I really know, I know. Um, yeah, I mean, I know, honestly. I think, and I don't know if I can necessarily credit anything to me, per se, um, because I think all of the things that we've been able to do um, is because, you know, we we work as a team. But, um, I begs to differ. <laughs> Hello. I promise it's something else. What me don't know. Sorry, sorry for the interruption. One, the, the people who are bringing the organization to help expand its focus, you have, to, you have to credit that to yourself. The kind of partnerships that the organization have also been able to forge, and not just you, but you are a big part of that, especially when we think about from the policy side and the engagement with government. The funding for a lot of the projects that we end up doing is also you. So I'm just ask you, please. Stop going like say you never instrumental. You never foolishness. Well, thank you, Glenroy. I appreciate. Um, this is why you'll be my chief of staff when I enter our next life. <laughs> so that's a useful segue. Um, since we have to wrap it up now, um, what is next? You've left the Batty organization. Um, I know, right? <laughs> Batty organization. 
when when they see everybody team say you're gonna get a, you're not gonna get all the facility or take no looks so so <laughs> yeah because I mean I'm not gonna lie I'm very curious because when they look at article come out or the, the tweet come out or whatever message so, okay something that I mentioned spot to go next now and them say you know he'll be you know going such and such here to do such and such there and then but this is some speculation about PMP and something now you're going to politics I don't mess they worry me again so. <laughs> For me, no, I, 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 yeah, the, girl, the, yeah. I mean, it's kind of curious. <laughs> I at least um, had the decency. My question was going to be, what are you most looking forward to next? I was not going to be so blunt and in your business as what's next. But well, girl, we're there table. for you. Moano, wacky. Okay, I'm putting man on a blunt. That's all I'm saying. I mean, for me, what's next, really? I mean, I'll continue to work around human rights and social justice, but I, you know, I've been at JFAC for 10 years, and um, I have so many other different interests and, um, and passion and things that I can do. And so for me, I'm trying to figure out life right now and what I can do and what contributions I can make. And I think it's also an important time to give the, the organization space to grow and become something else because I think, you know, you have to go through different eras and so if you like already going at one good time. Um, and so now I have to give that space. And I feel like it's in a good little space and a long time I kind of try to leave. I mean, it left one little time and I'm going to do the sale and then go back to come and say, boy, not the right time. Um, we're just like, we'll start one big project and something. And it's going to work boring and something. Somebody have to go back, right? Um, I was going to ask. I think like now the organization is a good, good position. Um, yeah, people like Glenn Rye and Suel Dem and Carrie, all sorts of people who can do all sorts of things. And yeah, you know, what's next? Family. I guess we'll just have to watch the space. My <laughs> <laughs> friend, answer like a politician. I don't know. Hello. <laughs> what maybe, maybe that's a sign. Maybe that's a sign. <laughs> watch the space. Watch the space, corner. Watch the space. That might be a hint to something. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I feel like so time up, so I forgot. Remember, just I'll do the wrap up. But before we do the wrap up, um, well, I'll stop there. Um, when I think, oh, now am I good? Yeah, go on, sir. So I think doing advocacy, you learn that it is it is really thankless work, and I don't say thankless to suggest that you know we sit and wait we only do it for a certain kind of expression of gratitude but it is draining it is taxing and it is demanding and it requires a lot and you know you will never admit this but i think you are you have been i think at least 80 percent we think i'm more but at least we can credit you i will credit you 80 percent of transforming into what it is, either that by your own direct or indirect action. Maybe I know you, maybe I know you directly do one activity, but you did come up with the idea and, and make, do one. I look at things where you just throw it out. So the person who can't catch it, catch it and do something with it. And I feel like we are, I am expressing for all of those that want to and all of those who know say them to express the gratitude, but now because them bad men, I am expressing the gratitude for all you've given to the LGBT movement in Jamaica, the way you have transformed it, the way you've opened up space for people like me and others to thrive, even if we don't necessarily feel like we have the skill set or we have the background and the connections to make a difference. You've kind of shown us by putting faith in us that we can do that work. And you know, so wherever you go, you're going to start up and it's going to be nice. 
So thank you, Javion N. Nelson. I mean, I can call your, your full government name, but thank you. I want to call you the most of half Japanese. Must feel like that only say after all of that. Thank you, Javion Nakasan Nelson. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a surprise. Okay. Right. And for all you will continue to support us, you've really made a gargantuan difference. I know a lot of people won't know the magnitude of your impact, but me more, I think some of it. I'm going to really appreciate Oh, thank you. Mm. So while JVN is watching the space, what you need to do, Glenroy, is transcribe that glow and recommendation and put it under his LinkedIn page. So he posts on that. Yeah. Uh, that's I don't do for free. Girls, this is one to learn. Don't deserve things for man for free. Make them hear. This way I just sound like a baby father. <laughs> <laughs> this is why this man sound like a baby father. <laughs> Oh gosh, thank you so much listeners for staying with us for another conversation of HD Season 3, you know, at the third time we're there. Um, thank you so much for your feedback and your engagement. Um, remember to follow us on all socials. We're at HD Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to reach out to us, you can DM us there or you can send an email at fishtpodcast at gmail.com. We're responsive also when we see the email then. Um, so thank you so much. Listen up. Season three, I got nice. I got have more than nice conversation here. So, and remember, all in all things, stay sophisticated. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>